So we're starting in John chapter 2. We're going to read this, uh, John 2, and I think we're going to just go through verse 12, okay? On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother said to Jesus, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out and take to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and authority of your word. We thank you, God, that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow, and the thoughts and the intents of our heart. God, we ask you this morning to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that would receive this message this morning, that we might look fully into this sign and see Christ and the glory that's revealed in it. Let us hold fast to the truth that we find, and let us shun all evil and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, I titled today's message, The First Sign, because far too often we get very allegorical about the wedding of Cana. We we, we start going, well, why is this important? And, you know, there's a lot of people that say, well, see, Jesus turned water into wine, so, you know, it's okay to drink. And, you know, look, the Bible does not have a, a prohibition against drinking alcohol. It has a prohibition against getting drunk. Amen? The, the reality is that's true, but that's still not the message in this story. That's not the message in this miracle, amen? John gives you the reason he wrote this, right? Remember John 20, verse 30, 31? I write these things unto you that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of John's letter. That's the whole purpose, purpose of John's gospel is that we might see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and believe in him. Amen? Amen. So John, in verse 11, says that this is the first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee that manifests his glory and his disciples believe on him. So the purpose of the miracle has already been laid out for us in Scripture that Jesus did this, Amen. that his disciples might believe. Amen. Amen? Not just a frivolous miracle. Now, Jesus was meeting a need at this time. We'll talk about that. 
But it wasn't done whimsically, and it wasn't even done on the fly, because we understand that God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful and omniscient. He knows all things. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Jesus himself knew the purpose that he was coming to this wedding for. And it wasn't the purpose that the bride had in mind. It wasn't the purpose that the bridegroom had in mind. It probably isn't even the purpose that his mother had in mind. Jesus also in this narrative is separating himself from his mother. Showing her that our relationship has just changed. That I'm no longer, we're no longer interacting as mother and son. Nowhere else in the gospel at any point until the crucifixion of Christ in the gospel of John do you see John Jesus' mother again. She's insinuated in a couple of places that she was with them, but she's not an active member of what's going on in John's narrative because the focus is Christ, and that ought to be our focus. Amen? Amen? Uh, we're going to talk about a few things that may uh, stir up some of our Catholic friends when we're done with this, and that's okay. Amen? I know, I know Susan's over there amening me already. Be nice. Be nice. My mom's probably going to watch this, Pastor. That's what she's saying. Be nice. Now, let's start at the beginning. We're going to go verse by verse, and it says, Now on the third day. Third day. This is ever see. There's a timeline going on in John. There's two sets of timelines that go on in John. There's the first seven days, and then he skips a whole year and goes to Jesus's last week. You realize most of the last half of John is the last week of Jesus's life. Why does it have so much detail? Why does it have so much? Uh, 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 story to it because John is an eyewitness to these things whereas Mark and Luke were not amen Matthew was there but Matthew was also limited in his interaction with Christ because Matthew wasn't in the inner circle who was the inner circle in Christ's inner circle there was three men Peter James and John. Amen? So we see from John's perspective, most of the book of John is the last week of Christ's life. The triumphal entry, the, the all the different miracles leading up to that. But here in John 1, he says, on the third day. John writes, on the third day. The third day from what? The third day from the time that he talked to Nathaniel. The third day from that, that's the last thing that happened, was he had interaction with Philip. Philip went and found Nathaniel and brought Nathaniel to Christ, right? So the third day is three days after that. And just to give you a time frame, if you want to flip back to chapter 1, I'm going to show you something that you may not have noticed before. But the first day is... John chapter 1, verse 19 through verse 28. That's the first day. John the Baptist, testimony of Jesus before the priest. The priest asked him, who, you, who are you? I'm not the Christ. Who are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? I'm not. Remember that whole conversation? And I want you to look at verse 29. It says, the next day. So everything before that was the first day. Now, when it says the next day, we're into the second day. Amen? And then you get to verse 35, and it says the next day. So we're in day three, right? Then you get to verse 43, and it says the next day. We're in day four. And that's the day he had with Nathaniel. And then it says on the third day. That's where we're at today. That's a week, one week. It's a time frame. It's a time stamp that John has put in the Bible right here for us to understand the elapsed amount of time that he's talking about. This is one week 
one week. So we start out this chapter three days after his interaction with Nathaniel, and it's interesting that on the seventh day, Jesus performs this miracle. It's interesting that after seven days of meeting these disciples is the first day that he performs a miracle. Now, we don't know what day of the week it was, so I can't say it was Saturday. I can't say it was Sabbath, okay? And chances are they were not going to have a wedding ceremony on the Sabbath, so we don't need to look at it like that, okay? So we don't know what day of the week it is. We do know that it was seven days from the time that John and he had interaction. Amen? Or John was talking to the Pharisees anyway. Why did John know what John the Baptist was saying to the Pharisees? Because John and Andrew were followers of John the Baptist. John the Baptist sent two of... Uh, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, right? And two of his disciples, one we know is Andrew. The other we assume is John because he doesn't mention his name throughout this whole entire book. But he is there, nonetheless, three different instances that we know in other parts of Scripture that there were only three people, like the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. There's only three people with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. Peter and James are mentioned. John is not. So we assume by reasoning that this person speaking is John. Amen? And he does that in other places. The When Jairus' daughter was raised, there was only three people there. Peter, James, and John. Amen? We know all of that from the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they all agree, right? John's is a little different. It's a little more detailed. It gives you information that you don't get from other gospels, like the name of the man that gets his ear cut off. The other gospels don't even mention his name because they didn't know him. But John knew the priests and the Levites at the temple, and he told you who it was. Amen? So let's look at this a little more. We have seven days later on the third day or three days after the interaction with Nathaniel. It culminates with a miracle or a sign, John says in verse 11. The first sign, John says, that shows Christ's glory and made his disciples believe in him. It's interesting that it happens this way. And then the, John makes note that the mother of Jesus was there. And here's the, the interesting part about how John talks about Jesus' mother. John never once uses her name. Why do you think this is? Why would John refrain from using Mary's name? Anybody got a guess? Huh? No, no, you're fine. Well, and it was Jesus' mom, and he, John doesn't use her name for a very specific reason. I want to take you to the cross, okay? Think about what happened at the cross. John and Mary, the other Mary Magdalene, uh, and the other women were standing at the foot of the cross with John, and John was looking up at the Lord, and the Lord looked down from the cross, and he said, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. So I believe, and a lot of scholars believe with me, that John refrains from using her name because now she's his mother. Now he's been put in charge of her. Now he's her son. So he's not using this name like, hey, Mary was there, right? Like, I'm not going to go, hey, Denise is on the front row, right? I mean, I'm going to say my mom's there, right? And so everybody knew that it wasn't necessarily his mom. He says the mother of Jesus. Amen. To distinguish the fact that though he was now her son and in charge of her, he's still given her the respect of not using her name, but also making sure that everybody knows she's the mother of 
Jesus. Amen. Other people think that it could be to keep from mixing up the different Marys that were there. Because there was more than just Mary Magdalene. There was other Marys that followed them. Amen. So we know that there was more than two Marys. Possibly lots of Marys because it was a common name. Amen. It's like John. Like if you went out to a crowd of a thousand people and said, hey, John, probably 10 or 15 of them are going to turn around. Right? <laughs> Or Mike, right? I'm just saying that that's pretty normal, okay? So either one of those probably makes sense, amen? Uh, verse 2, the next thing that happens is Jesus, uh, notice it says that Jesus and his disciples are also invited to the wedding, okay? Now there's a lot of information that we're going to disseminate here about this fact, okay? D.A. Carson says that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were all invited to the same wedding, suggests that the wedding was for a relative or a close family friend, and that makes sense. Amen? I don't know how many women get up in the morning and say, well, today's my wedding. I'm just going to send out invitations to complete strangers. <laughs> it don't happen that way, right? Like, let's just think about it rationally, right? Nobody gets up on wedding morning and goes, man, I should have invited all of Coffeeville, right? No. Matter of fact, there's probably some people you'd rather not see show up, right? Like, there's some past people that you may not want to look at or may not want to be at your wedding, amen? You may be like, hey, you know, uh, we're all good and all, but you just stay home, right? So, understanding this, normal way of thinking the fact that Jesus's mother Jesus and his disciples were invited is testament that somehow they were either related to these people or very close friends amen now I would almost hedge my bet on the fact that they were related somehow why would I say that because of the way Mary takes charge of the whole situation of running out of wine, right? Like the women in your family, when when you run out of stuff, you're like, oh no, we're out of this. One of the women is gonna go, oh no, we gotta fix this. And most of the time, now, a lot of people think that when Mary is, is distraught about the wine, she's coming to Jesus like she wants a miracle. Now, I'm not sure that's the case because far too often at parties, at my brother's house or my house, when something gets, we're running out of something, running out of ice, or we're running out of soda or something, my wife will come to me and say, hey, we're running out of this. Go get some. <laughs> right? Right? Let's just be honest. Let's talk about it right. Being real. So, even if she wasn't expecting a miracle, that doesn't change the fact that she had an expectation of Christ to do something. Why would she have this expectation? Well, number one, we have not seen Joseph since Jesus was 12 years old. And in the gospel, Jesus went from being called the, the son of Joseph the carpenter to be called the carpenter himself. Which implies that Joseph is no longer around and Jesus is the one running the family business because he's the carpenter. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has probably been taking care of his mom for quite a while now. So why would his mom come to him? Because he takes care of stuff, right? He's been the one taking care of her. So she'll come to him. It's natural. It's the way it works. Amen? Now, that does not diminish this miracle in any sense if we don't see Mary expecting a miracle. Now, if somebody wants to say they think Mary was expecting a miracle, I'm all for it because the wording in the text kind of alludes to that, and I'm not going to discount that. Look at what it says. It says, uh, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Notice he says, my hour has not yet come. Why would he say that if she wasn't expecting some kind of miracle? That's what the most commentators will say, okay? If they're for Mary coming to Jesus for a miracle. Now, 
that, that's not conclusive, okay? That doesn't prove a case. It gives you a, a, an outlet to say possibly, okay? That's what it really says, okay? Now, we don't have any verifiable historical evidence scripturally that Jesus did any miracles before this point. We have apocryphal letters and, and stories that try to say that, but we don't have any scriptural evidence to that fact, okay? I'm not saying she wasn't expecting a miracle. I'm saying that a um, physical alternative, a rational human element of she came to Jesus because he's her son and he's been taking care of her, and that's how most women in my family do me when something's running out. They say, here, go get this, right? How many times do we run errands during parties, Mike? I mean, it happens like almost every one, okay? Something happens, and then we got to run an errand because we ran out, amen? Now, I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. I'm just saying the possibility's there, okay? But... It also reinforces the idea that this is a family member because Mary feels like she has to take charge of it, right? She feels obligated. So somehow or another, Mary was involved with either the planning of the catering and the wine or she was related to the family and felt obligated to protect their honor by not letting the wine run out. Amen? Because it's very poor taste to not provide enough for all your guests, right? So this is what we're talking about, right? The wine ran out. Now, there's something that I pulled out of here uh, just for this part. And it's very interesting to me that Mary comes to Jesus when the wine ran out. And I think here is where most of us find Christ. When we've come to the end of our rope, <laughs> when all of our efforts and all of our work and all of our resources have dried up, and suddenly we find ourselves wanting, lacking, and needing something else. How many people who came to Christ had the same story? I felt like something was missing. I was I was devoid of hope. I, had, I was at the bottom of the barrel. I hit rock bottom. Amen? And this speaks to the fact that Jesus does not come to heal those who are not sick. Jesus did not, did not come for those who think they're righteous. Jesus did not come to fill those who think they're already full. He came for those who who come to the end of their rope and say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm a woman who's caught in the act, amen? Come on, let's talk about all the people he ministered to. The woman caught in the act of adultery, the woman who struggled with, with uh, uh, sickness for 12 years and no doctor could heal her, no, no physician could make her well, but all of a sudden, when she heard Jesus was coming by, she said, I must touch the hem of his garment. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is the place when the wine runs out. Amen. That's where we meet Christ. Amen. That's where we meet him when the, when the wine runs out, when all is lost, when hope is all but lost, and then all of a sudden, but God. Amen? Yeah. That's where we meet him. At the end of the line, at the end of our rope, amen? amen? Jesus came to fulfill needs, not to just be a trinket to be added on to your life. Because so many people nowadays think, well, I'm okay. And it helps them because there's false teachers on TV who shall remain, remain nameless uh, who have a first initial of J and a last initial of O, who always tell them people are basically good. People are good people at heart. Wrong. The Bible says that all people everywhere are lost sinners who are dying 
Christ. The reality is that there is not one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one's running after God. The reality is I need Christ. Not Christ is just a good idea. He's just something I can add on to what I'm already doing and make me a little better. Yeah, come on. God doesn't need. Don't take anybody either. Oh, God. God appointed every man to die. Every person in this room, one way or another, you're going if, if Jesus doesn't come back, every one of us are going to die. And then the judgment. Every one of us. But the reality is Jesus didn't come for those who think they're all right. He didn't come for those who think they can do it by themselves. Jesus said, if you seek the praise of men and you give your tithe where others can pat you on the back, you've received your reward. He said, do not store for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust can eat and corrupt. Amen. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Why? Because if I try to store up treasure here on earth, I have my reward. And I will not have an eternal reward. I'm not looking for the, a kingdom on earth. I'm looking for the kingdom that's coming. I'm looking, for, I'm looking ahead to that great and wonderful city that I'll be a part of. Amen. I'm looking for the time when Jesus calls me home. Where I can stand with him on streets of gold and walk on a sea of glass. And stand before the throne of God and listen to the thunder and see the lightning. That's what I'm looking for. But I won't see it if I don't think I need it. Every single Christian that's ever been regenerate, born again by God's will is done so when they realized they need him. Not any other way. Doesn't happen any other way in scripture. Amen. So it's common that the women of the family would come to Jesus when the wine ran out. And we realize when we see our need for Christ, that's when we come to him. I wanted to read you a quote from Spurgeon that I thought was very relevant to this. It's, this is technically for verse 11, but it pertains to this whole thing. He says, Jesus did this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the beginning of miracles that were worked. Uh, and this miracle was worked at a wedding to show the great generosity of Christ. Marriage was the last relic of paradise left among us. And Jesus sought to honor it with his first miracle. Our Lord's miracles were worked in each case to meet a need. The wine had failed at the wedding feast, and our Lord came in at the time of need when the bridegroom was fearful of becoming ashamed. That need was great. That need was a great blessing. If there had been sufficient wine for the feast, Jesus would not have worked this miracle, and they would not have tasted this purest and best wine. It is a blessed and need. It is a blessed need that makes room for Jesus to come in with a miracle of love. It is good to run short when we may be driven that we may be driven to the Lord by our necessity. For he will more than supply it. If we have no need, Christ will not come to us. But if we are dire and in dire necessity, his hand will stretch out to us. If our needs stand before us like a huge empty water pot, 
or if our souls are full of grief as those same pots were filled up with water to the brim. Jesus can by his sweet will turn all that water into wine, the sighing into singing. And we should be glad to be weak so that the power of God may rest upon us. This miracle, first and foremost, Jesus is, yes, meeting a need, but Jesus is also declaring the kingdom of God that is at hand. Himself as the Messiah, himself as the way of salvation, himself as the giver of new wine. Amen? So if there was a parallel between wine, it would be the new wine of the new covenant made in Christ. They have no wine. Now, what? why is this so important? I want to read you a small note that I made here about having no wine. The wedding parties ran out of wine maybe as a symbol of spiritual barrenness of the first century Judaism, especially against the backdrop of the Old Testament that viewed wine, but not drunkenness, as a sign of joy and God's blessing. Number one, the Old Testament law is wrapped up in these water jars. Amen. What did the water, what did the water jars represent? The Jewish ritual of purification, right? Jesus had them fill those water pots up so that Jesus could turn the old covenant and the works that were empty and void of making salvation possible, and He turned it around and gave us new wine in a new covenant his own blood not to mention that this is just a big social faux pas to run out of wine at the wedding amen, amen. you're not supposed to run out of wine you're supposed to have enough for everybody like Carmen was worried today that's why there's still all them bags left over she said I don't know how many people are going to show up for Mother's Day so I need to make enough bags right why because we don't want to run out we didn't want one of you mothers walking out of the room going well I didn't get nothing <laughs> amen want everybody to have all they needed. Amen? Now let's look at the part that most women don't like. How Jesus talks to his mom. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Now look, Mike, if your mom was here and she, she came to you and said, hey Mike, we need to do this, and you turn around and say, hey woman. Huh? Huh? Come on, let me tell you. How many moms are going to go, what? What'd you just say to me? Right. You're, what, right? You're going to look at your kid and you're going to say, what? What'd you just say to me? Now, Mary knew that Jesus was different. Amen? We know that she knew that Jesus was being given to her because he was going to save his people from their sin. We know this. It probably did not stop Mary from over the course of the 33 years that Jesus was alive from having moments where she said, what'd you say? Now, what's interesting is Mary doesn't even take offense to the way Jesus talks. And that's because the Greek word when they just say woman is not offensive like it is in English to us today. Okay? It was not demeaning. It wasn't Rude? Was it very abrupt? Yes, but it was not rude, okay? The woman here is not cold and indifferent, and it's not a cold and indifferent term in Greek as it is in English. Uh, some Bibles use the phrase, dear woman. Now, that's disingenuous because the Greek word literally is woman, okay? So putting deer in front of it, they're trying to make it seem less abrupt, okay? But the word itself is not being used wrongly, and he's not being demeaning. Otherwise, his mom would have said, what would you say to me? But Mary didn't do that, did she? Mary didn't look at him and go, what you say? Now, let's talk about culture for a minute. Culturally, the men are the head of the house. 
which we got away from in the United States, which we probably need to get back to because that's biblical, okay? But number two, in that culture, it was not uncommon for the, even the son to just say woman, okay? It's not, now, is it odd at the time of the conversation that he's doing it? Yes, and we're gonna look at why it's odd, okay? And we'll talk about why possibly he's doing it, amen? But the Greek word that's being used here is gune, okay? It is G-Y-N-E, and then the pronunciation is gune, okay? Gune, and it simply means woman, and that means any woman. Woman, whether you're married, whether you're virgin, whether you're not a virgin, whether you're unmarried, just woman. And it can also mean a wife or a betrothed woman, okay? So it's simply a word for woman, okay? Now, this same word, I want you to know, is the same word that Jesus used from the cross in John 19, 26. When he looked at his mother and he said, woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Amen. It's the same word. So let's take the English, uh, the English idea of it being demeaning and just set it to the side, okay? Because that's not what's going on. Now, the way that he speaks to her when he says, uh, what does this have to do with me? This Greek term is actually literally saying, what to me and to you is this woman, okay? He's not being demeaning. He's creating separation from her. When he says woman, creating separation. When he says, what does this have to do with me? Creating separation. And when he says, my hour has not yet come, now he's talking about, look, now I'm about my father's business and I'm looking forward and I'm working towards my hour. Amen. So the relationship with Jesus and his mother here at this point is beginning to change where it's not just mother and son anymore, but it's Christ and creation. It is Savior and redeemed. Amen. There's separation here in the language in the Greek. And the term uh, literally the tis emokai soi is peace creating separation. It is creating separation between the two parties, okay? So he's doing this purposely because he's about to do the first miracle that's going to declare his glory, amen? amen. No, not one miracle that Jesus ever did in his life was meaningless. Right. You know, uh, the, 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 the part where Jesus went to Capernaum and they brought all the sick that were among them and he healed all those who were oppressed of devils and all those who were afflicted, right? Matthew makes a point to say this is to fulfill the scriptures that said he bore our, uh, our iniquities and our sin. And by his stripes we are healed. He said this is fulfilling that. Amen. He fulfilled that. He healed all their sickness, all their diseases. He fulfilled that prophecy. Matthew makes a point to tell you that. And here, Jesus is creating this separation because he's about to show his disciples on the Christ. Amen? And he's wanting his mother to now see him, not as son, but as Christ. As the prophet, as the Messiah. Amen? Not Jesus the Carpenter. Not Jesus my son, but Jesus, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Amen? Now, my hour has not yet come. This is interesting, and I have a little note to read on this. My hour has not yet come in John. Jesus' hour is the time of his crucifixion, at which time. His saving work is accomplished in his atoning death. See John 7.30, John 8.20, 20, 
John 12 and 23, John 12 and 27, John 13 and 1, John 17 and 1. Now, all of these are instances where Jesus is talking about his hour. And it's interesting that in the garden, he realizes his hour is at hand. Amen? When he knew the hour was at hand, he went to the garden. Amen? He's praying. Great sweat, sweated, great drops of blood, all that. Amen? We remember that's the hour. Okay? And it's interesting that in John's gospel, when Jesus is crucified, he gives you the hour. That he gives up the ghost. Why? Because that hour was set from the foundation of the world to save sinners. Amen. God did not think up Jesus in some afterthought. Like, you know, uh, the Garden of Eden didn't work out. Oops, now let me find Abraham. Well, that didn't really work out either. Oops, and let me make the law. Well, that didn't work out. Oops, let me think of Christ. No, the Bible says that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Christ was the plan from the beginning. It was his intention. God intentionally sent Christ for a reason. And despite what some people may think, God is not sitting back idly going, I don't know who's ever going to believe in me. God is all-knowing. He's not going, oh, I wonder if they're going to believe, or I wonder if they're going to believe, or I wonder if they're going to do it. God doesn't do We do that because we don't know. We're not all-knowing. We're not omniscient. We don't know the thoughts and the intents of people's heart, but God does. God is not surprised. God is not, God is not overwhelmed with surprise when somebody does or doesn't. God doesn't sit back and go, whoo, I didn't see that one coming. No, God does the drawing. God does the wooing. God's the one that does the saving. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. Jesus knew the hour that he had to go to. And he's separating this now where he's starting his earthly work. Now, Charles Spurgeon says, if we can all do what Mary just said, do whatever he tells you to do. Right? Isn't that our goal as Christians is to do whatever he tells us to do? That's our goal, right? It's very interesting, and I read uh, some commentary from Spurgeon on this, and he said, it's interesting that they do this so zealously. He said that we all would do our work for Christ so zealously. Christ tells them to fill the pots, and they filled them to the brim. First of all, those are going to be heavy whether they're to the brim or not. 20 gallons of water in a big, heavy stone water pot? That's heavy. I'm just thinking about how I'm going to bear hug that thing and carry it anywhere, right? Might be a two-man job, especially as old as I'm getting. Just saying. Now, these water pots, they fill them to the brim. I thought it was interesting that Charles Spurgeon thought that was something to be really. He's like, they were so zealous that they filled them to the brim. And that might be true. And maybe when we serve Christ, that's the only way to serve him is all in, all the way. With no reservation. Just do what he says, when he says, and just as best as I can, go do it. Amen. Zealously, like Spurgeon said. Do whatever he says. Mary still has an expectation of Jesus helping her. She just ignored his whole woman comment, right? Like it didn't phase her one bit. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. She just looked at the servants and said, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. She totally ignored the fact that he said, I, my hour ain't yet come. That's what my mom would do to me, too, if she's wanting something done. Whatever. Okay, just do what Kevin told you to do. Okay, whatever he says. And then I'm going to go, well, I guess I'm going to do this, right? 
It's the way Carmen does me too, okay? She, she, uh, uh, I ain't got time for that. Well, well, you know, you're the pastor and you got to go do the, uh, oh, okay. And here I go, right? Come on. Uh, the trash needs taken out. Well, you know, I, I did it last week. How many of you ever missed a trash truck? Okay, like, man, I hate when I miss the trash. It's a good thing I got that fire pit over there. I just burn the rest of that trash. I, I don't sit there and wait all, day, all week for it to come back. Okay, I'm burning. But that's what's happening here. Mary just totally ignores him, and she's like, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, again, Jesus doesn't go, well, I guess I'm doing this, right? He knew his mom was going to do that, right? Jesus knew what was in the heart of every man, John tells us, right? I'm just let you know that means every woe man, too, okay? <laughs> that means every woe man, too, okay? He knows what's in the heart of you women also. And it's a good thing he knows what's in the heart of you women because us guys don't got a clue, okay? It's a good thing Jesus knows because I don't. <coughs> we ought to have a lot more amens out of Mike and Kyle, okay? That should have been, been some good amens out of that. Because I know Becca has to endure some of that stuff. Wish she could read my mind. Right? Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> She's standing over there with a frying pan one day and Kyle reads her mind. What would you say about me? That'd be bad. Maybe, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Now, verse 6. Many equate these jars as, as examples of the emptiness and the incompleteness of the Jewish law and customs, which Jesus replaces with something better. The new wine, the new covenant, the new birth, everlasting life. Amen. This new wine, Hebrews tells us that we're in a better covenant. Amen? Amen? It's Hebrews 8 and 6, if you want to go turn over there with me. Hebrews 8 and 6. Well, if I can find Hebrews, God's favorite coffee. 8. Huh? Gunay. 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 Yep. I, believe me, I'm the only one making coffee in my house, okay? <laughs> Carmen don't drink coffee. Hebrews 8, 6 says this. But as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 8, 6 says we are in a better covenant. And this is a parallel that has been drawn since the early days of Christendom, okay? We're talking... Uh, back to, to Polycarp, okay? This drawing the same conclusion. And no doubt John is drawing this same conclusion because John himself is a Jew and understanding that these Jewish water pots were for ritual purification understood that they were weak in that he was weak. The weakness is not in the law. The weakness is in me. The weakness is in my flesh. Because I cannot keep the law. And the law, although it points out sin, the law doesn't save me. The law doesn't redeem me. Right. If I wrote a bunch of rules up here on the wall, and you broke one of the rules, is the, the, the tablet hanging on the wall going to keep you from getting in trouble? No. No. It's a schoolmaster. It teaches you that you broke the law. It does not offer forgiveness. It does not offer grace. It does not offer a way out. The way out is Christ. He's given us the way of escape. He is the scapegoat.
goat or the sacrificial lamb. Amen. That's our way out. They filled the pots to the brim. Spurgeon says the third principle is this, that whenever we get a commandment from Christ, it is always wisdom to carry it out zealously. Now this also could spark, uh, speak of the abundance of the Jesus' messianic uh, supply or his messianic provision that Jesus fulfills the law completely to the brim on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be called the righteousness of God in Christ. They took it to the master or the governor of the feast, as the King James says, the head caterer who was in charge of serving the food and the drink, who employed other servants, and they gave him a drink of this wine, and he said, it's the best wine. And I'm not going to get into an argument whether you think it's a, a non-alcoholic wine or if you think it's alcoholic wine. Wine is wine. If it wasn't wine, they would have just called it grape juice, okay? It was wine. And then not only was it wine, but it was the best wine. What does that mean? What they would do to make the wine go farther is they would dilute it. 10 to 15% of what its alcoholic volume was. So they would put water in there. And there's some people that suggest that's all Jesus was telling them was to dilute the water. So you're telling me that Jesus, to show his glory, just diluted some wine. And the governor of the feast tasted said it was the best wine. And he was doing it jokingly. So our whole faith is built on this miracle that wasn't a miracle. That's preposterous. You don't even find it in the reading. John says it was wine. The governor said it was the best wine. And John calls this a miracle, not just diluting wine. Amen? So this wine, when they say it's the best wine, it was not diluted wine. It was pure wine. And he said, I don't even know where this came from. This is the guy that's catering the whole thing. He's like, where did this wine come from? And he went to the bridegroom. Notice that Jesus' miracle gave the bridegroom not shame, but glorified the bridegroom. Because the bridegroom, not only did he not run out of wine, he had the best wine for last. And the bridegroom gets praised for not letting the wine run out. Not only not letting the wine run out, but saving the best wine for last. And I'm telling you that the law was good. God gave the law to Moses and the law was a blessing from God to Israel. But the new covenant is much better and based on better promises. It's based on a better sacrifice. It's based on a better covenant from God to humanity because Christ perfectly kept the law when I could not. And then redemption is truly possible. Not just covering over sin, but forgiving it completely. The bridegroom kept his honor by Christ's miracle. And the shame was averted. The wine that replaced the water of the Jewish law and custom was superior. The best, the better covenant that we talked about in Hebrews 8 and 6. Now I want to read one more note. This is the first sign that Jesus did that caused his disciples, namely John, who wrote this letter, to believe in him. Amen? Verse 11, have a note, miracles that attest to Jesus' identity as Messiah and the Son of God and lead unbelievers to faith. John specifically states after this sign, Jesus' disciples believed in him. The statement 
was this was the first of his signs indicating that Jesus did not do any miracles during his childhood or early mother uh, manhood contrary to dozens of apocryphal gospel stories outside of the New Testament but lived as an ordinary man and uh, with his divine identity hidden in each of the signs that John includes the emphasis is on the sign which reveals Jesus's messianic character and on the exceptional striking nature of the feast or the feat accomplished by Jesus such as the large quality quantity and high quality of the wine the fact that his official's son is healed long distance away by the power of Jesus's word that's another one of those signs remember when the the centurion's son is healed with just a word John says that this is a sign and points to it as a sign of who Christ was amen remember as we're reading the book of John that there's nothing put in this book by happenstance it's not there just to fill the void John put this whole thing together that you would believe Jesus is the Christ amen and that's the purpose of this sign is to point to Jesus and the messianic truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that he's the fulfillment of the prophets Amen. All the law and prophets spoke of him. Isn't that what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses spoke of me. Amen. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. And that's why those water pots were filled to the brim because Jesus fulfilled it for me. And if you're here this morning and you think you've got to do it on your own and you think you, you've got to be doing this and you've got to do that, Paul, at the end of his life, said that he was changed from glory to glory, not by his own will, not by his own work, but by the Spirit of God. Even your sanctification has to come from God to you, and then you act upon it. Let God do the work. Because when God does the work, it's permanent. Amen. When I try to do it, it's very much sinking sand. Don't build your house on what you think the Bible says. Build your house on what we know the Bible says. What we know the Bible teaches. Amen. Why do we learn this? The same reason the Bereans studied it. To know Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, everyone, to your feet. So as we close this Mother's Day service, I know I didn't preach a Mother's Day uh, message, and there's a reason for that. Mothers are important, but this is the Lord's Day, and we're going to preach about him. Amen. And we're going to teach his gospel. We're not going to capitulate to society and preach about moms, which we could. And I have. But God is first. And we're going to put God first. The gathering of the saints is to talk about the Lord, to worship Christ. Amen. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I pray that by the time we're done praying that he has convicted your heart and that you come to faith in Christ. If you're watching on Facebook, pray the same prayer for you. Let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the new and living way. That we have access into the Holy of Holies by his living and true sacrifice for me his blood shed for me gives me access to being a son and a daughter of the Lord this morning Lord if 
there's anyone that has heard this message and does not know you, God, I pray that you would convict their heart, that you would bring them to faith in Christ, that, that they would trust you and put their faith in you, that they would repent and believe the gospel, that they would wholeheartedly, as Hebrews chapter 9, or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 says, that they would believe in their heart and they would confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, that they would believe that God raised him from the dead and they would be saved. And Lord, I pray for all of us who do believe in you, that you would put a brand new desire in our heart to share the gospel, to speak the truth of who Christ is, and to live our lives wholly and completely for you. Lord, I pray you bless this food that we are about to receive to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies for your service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.